You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. The scene is black and gray. A camera pans up from a fog-covered floor to reveal a hallway which stretches off into the darkness. Decrepit candelabras stand disused by tattered wall hangings, and in the distance, a figure emerges, graceful, elegant, and possibly thin-waisted. She fills the frame, and then suddenly emits a scream followed by an orgasmic sigh and then purrs, screaming, relaxes me so. A 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. In 1954, late-night television viewers were able to watch the birth of a new American pop culture character, the horror movie host. As Vampira, Mela Nurmi donned gothic garb and campy horror props to introduce low-end films for a Los Angeles television station. But in doing so, she also created the prototype of what would become a staple of American television for 30 years. In her wake came others, Zachary, Zvenguli, and eventually Elvira, but also many more in local markets. Hundreds, actually. There's a website called Igor's Chamber, which lists over 300 horror hosts. Today, most local markets have given up the late-night horror host in favor of running infomercials, but they're still out there. And other variants on the idea emerged as well. Movie riffers, like those on Mystery Science Theater 3000, certainly owe something to the horror hosts. And more informative hosts like Joe Bob Briggs, who eschewed makeup in favor of wit and trivia, come from this line. Here in the Atlanta area, local theater owner George Ellis became the character Bestoink Dooley to host horror on WAGA. But my personal first exposure to horror hosts came from Atlanta's Channel 17. Before it became Ted Turner's Superstation, there was a show called Friday Night Frights, and I just had to watch it because it showed monster movies, but was horrified to find that in order to watch the films, 
I had to get past the introductions by this horrific character who rose up out of a coffin. I wanted to watch the movies, but I was terrified of this man in the coffin. It was years later before I found the website Igor's Chamber, where I was able to find out who this scary fellow was. Some people thought it was Ted Turner himself, but I honestly don't want to spoil the story because the way it unfolds with various people writing into the Igor site with their memories and recollections of this character, who was known as Dead Ernest, is a neat little mystery. It does get solved, and I can tell you that it wasn't Ted, but I have long hoped somebody out there might have some recordings of this particular host's bits. I wanted to see how my memories from nearly 40 years ago compare to the reality. Coming up next, we have Scott Poole returning to talk to us about his research into the life and times of Mela Nermi, America's first horror host, Vampira. Monster Talk. We're going to welcome back today Scott Poole, who is the author of Monsters in America, the book Satan in America. And his newest book is what we're going to be talking about today, Vampira, Dark Goddess of Horror. Uh, Scott is a professor of history at the College of Charleston. So your book is about Vampira and the woman who created her. And right. and she's most famous, I would imagine, to most of our listeners as her role as Vampira and possibly from right. uh, the sort of portrayal of her in the Ed Wood movie. But yes. but what was she? What is a horror host? What, what were all these movie monster hosts that came out of the 50s? What was that all about? Well, one of the reasons that she's important is that she was the first horror host um, and actually predated the bigger phenomena by... Um, well, actually, exactly about four years. Um, what is thought of as kind of the classical period of the horror host really begins in about 1958 when a Philadelphia TV station um, chose uh, John Zacherly to create a character that at the time was called um, Roland. And actually, Roland had been, um, he actually played. Um, a sort of morbid undertaker figure on um, some uh, um, sort of a local serialized Western in Philadelphia. And um, uh, uh, studio execs kind of got the idea that, well, let's actually let him take that character to late night, um, have him host uh, some horror films. And the reason that happens right in 1958 is that very recently, Universal Studios had uh, decided to package um, a little over 50 of their classic horror and uh, mystery and suspense films um, into kind of one bundle that they called Shock Theater. And so suddenly, um, you know, studio executives, not just in Philly, but all over the country, just had just kind of an embarrassment of riches of uh, everything from classic horror films to honestly not very good B-horror that had been made in the 1940s and 50s. Um, and so to spice this up, to get audiences interested in that kind of material again, because everybody was really into science fiction in the 1950s, they decided, you know, let's go with the idea of, of having a host um, to host the shows, to actually make fun of them a little bit. Uh, which is exactly what Roland did. Um, he later became kind of the most famous of the horror hosts, just calling himself Zachary uh, when he went to kind of the bigger media market of, of New York. A lot of people think that he was the first horror host. Um, 
at least a small point that I like to make in the book is that he's not, that in fact he was borrowing a lot of ideas that Myla Nurmi, through her character of Vampira, was playing around with about four years earlier in Los Angeles. As an interesting side note to me, Zachary's still alive. He's 95 years old now. Mm-hmm. He's going to be yes. in October, I think, they're at Chiller Theater. They're doing a... Um, some kind of a conference. I think it's in New Jersey. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But if you're in the New Jersey area and want to see a really old uh, movie horror host, uh, <laughs> he's still out there. Yeah, I think, you know, and for many horror fans, he's not just thought of as, as the original, but the one that kind of created the template for it. Uh, part of what the book talks about is that he really was borrowing a lot of uh, vampires material. Oddly, I actually discovered that they never they never really met. Um, which surprised me. He was very aware of her, um, but honestly, she had kind of sunk into sort of a period of obscurity just at kind of the time he was on a trajectory of becoming, for a while at least, America's horror host. Well, I I have to say I really enjoyed reading your book because um, it's not just... Um, a linear narrative of her life. It's not just a biography. I think you do a really good job of uh, giving uh, a really complete cultural context to her position in the 1950s culture, uh, which has got to be hard. I mean, as a historian, because if you just yeah. if you just give the dates and the names and the this happened and this happened, you don't really get a very uh, robust, thick picture of where where the context right. was. What was it like doing all that research, or how how did you decide what to include and what not to include? It was actually very freeing in a sense that um, I did not have an enormous amount of biographical materials about her. Um, There are actually good periods of her life, particularly the 60s and 70s, that are very, very obscure. Um, She didn't talk a lot about them. Um, She was forgotten for a long period of time. Um, A lot of the materials that I had access to were really about her younger life and then her brief period of fame and then kind of this era right at the end of her life when she starts to become a cult figure. Um, And so it sort of freed me from the constraints of a traditional biography, um, which does tend to be very linear and and fact-driven, and this is what we know. Um, I think that what it urged me to do, though, is to think about her larger significance. And I think that um, along with learning, honestly, learning about a lot of new stuff about her, because I, I did uncover some interesting facts, just biographical facts, I think the book is really about her significance in American culture, particularly in terms of just how different, how, um, you know, um, subversive, how bizarre she was for the 1950s, um, which obviously was a period when American society was pulling in and, and, you know, uh, thinking in uh, very conservative terms about women and sex and home life and all of those things. And Vampira was really just this explosion <laughs> of all sorts of ideas that almost seemed like they belonged to a, to a different era. And so for me, that was a lot of fun thinking about that, um, that dynamic um, in a period that we generally think of as 
well, this is just really kind of a conservative period of retrenchment, you know, after World War II and a time to to mostly be worried about the Soviets and 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 atomic war and whether or not women are are staying in the household like they're quote unquote supposed to. <laughs> um, and Vampira really, you know, just blew all of that to pieces. So, do you think she's um, an important? Uh, feminist cultural icon in that sense? Um, you know, I hesitated to use that word for her particularly, um, in part because I, it was not a word that she used. Um, however, um, I absolutely would see her as sort of a, a, a proto-feminist, as sort of a precursor to a lot of the things that comes along in uh, the 1960s. I think she actually almost sort of helps us to understand certain things about um, 1960s feminism a little bit better. Um, just as a for example, um, you know, um, a lot of uh, second wave feminism, um, this, you know, reemergence of feminism in the 60s, um, was really about calling attention to the ways that women were stereotyped in American culture and kind of making fun of some of that, almost kind of a performance art kind of thing. Um, the famous um, uh, the famous protests at the 1968 Miss America pageant are a, a good example of that. And, uh, you know, Vampira is really kind of a precursor to that in the sense that she kind of designed her show. I mean, she was introducing horror movies, but she was also parodying certain elements of American uh, gender relations and the idea of, of kind of the happy homemaker. Um, and it, it was, I, I think of her as kind of a performance artist in that sense. Um, and I think that I got to that idea because she thought of herself that way. Um, I mean, she she never really described herself as just an entertainer. Um, she used language like, you know, she was on a mission, on a mission, and and that she understood that America was a very repressive place uh, to be, and that she wanted to upset those conventions. I mean, it seems like there's not any episodes of her show that were saved in any way. Um, no, um, this is actually like I cry inside every time. <laughs> every time I and outside sometimes. Um, every time I think about this, um, you know, TV in that era, kind of that. It's literally the first few years of American television, and I mean, they were just destroying um, old kinescopes right and left. So. Um, there's actually only a little bit of live footage of her, and it's and it's not of her show. Um, there's one promo video that anybody can find on YouTube, um, and then there's actually some appearances that just came to light in the last couple of years, really limited footage um, of her appearance on a national variety show um, and a national game show. Um, and we only have that thanks to uh, 
the good work of um, Raymond Green, R.H. Green, um, who has a wonderful, um, I actually, any listener that's interested in Vampira ought to take a look at his documentary, Vampira and Me. Um, he uncovered that those old kinescopes, and they're really wonderful. It's the only live footage we have of her actually performing. Do we know what uh, shows, what movies she was actually, do we have schedules, like what movies she was hosting? We do. We do. Um, limited, we don't know all of them. Um, I actually found one listing um, of her lineup, and um, keeping in mind that this was before Shock Theater was released, uh, she actually was not able to show a lot of the classic Universal Studios horror films. Um, it's wonderful to kind of think about what she would have done with, with those. Um, what she had was a lot of B-movies that that local studio had managed to purchase. And the, really the only kind of outstanding classic that she was able to show was um, Bela Lugosi's White Zombie um, from 1935. Um, so, uh, which he actually watched in his L.A. suburban home with Ed Wood, interestingly enough, um, and was really interested in Vampire because of that. But um, actually, one of the odd things is a lot of the stuff she was showing was actually um, not horror. It was what we would call, uh, you know, film noir, at least B film noir. A lot of mystery, a lot of uh, kind of... Um, Dashiell Hammett-inspired uh, uh, suspense-type stories. Uh, she sort of, it's interesting, she sort of tried to turn them into horror stories <laughs> in weird ways. Um, she would do things like, you know, if there was a happy ending, she would say stuff like, oh, I'm, I'm so sad that we've had to watch this unpleasant moment. Um, you know, so she tried to add a horror element even when she didn't have actual horror movies to show. The format was the format basically what we know of in the modern uh, horror host, where there's a movie being shown, and before or after the commercial break, she comes back and says something before the film starts. Is that the way it worked? Um, it actually was a little bit more freeform than that. Um, one of the things that um, I kind of picked up on from um, descriptions of people who had been on the set and, and her own descriptions of, um, of the show is that it was really this kind of, I don't know, it was like this vernacular folk art kind of thing that she was doing um, where, you know, they would have some basic skits that they would do, um, which is not uncommon with later horror hosts to kind of break up the movie and, and to break into the movie. Um, but um, a lot of that was ad-libbed, um, and um, the skits seemed to be a little bit more elaborate than, say, anything that you would see on, well, if, you know, people who watch, like, the second incarnation of Zvengoli on MeTV these days, um, what Vampira was doing was a, a bit more uh, a bit more elaborate than that, and um, a bit more uh, kind of both explicitly, sometimes more implicitly political than that. So let's go back. Let's go back to the original question. Most people will have is who is I want to say I want to say her name, but I'm probably going to say it wrong. Is it Mela Nearing? Myla Nearing? It's it's Myla. I've actually heard it pronounced B. 
both. Um, I had to spend some time trying to figure this out myself, but it seems like she said she said monarch. I swear, if I had a dollar for everything, like every word that I knew from reading but not hearing pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm in the same yeah. boat. Well, and the other thing I picked up on is in newspaper accounts of her outside of L.A., um, I kept finding her name spelled M-Y-L-A. Um, ah, well, there you go. Essentially, people spelling it like they were hearing it pronounced. So I'm pretty sure it's Myla. That, that makes that seems like a very good supportive evidence. <laughs> so who was Myla <laughs> Nurmi? How did how did before she became a TV personality? How, how, did, how what was she? Who was she? She an incredibly fascinating person, just in terms of uh, her biography alone. Her um, father was actually an immigrant from fin- from Finland who came to the United States in kind of the 1910s. And this does not at all seem like a, a good sort of family launching pad for a future horror host, but he was actually a, a Lutheran temperance lecturer who uh, who traveled around the country talking about um, the horrors of, of, of drink. Um, but I actually think that her somewhat problematic relationship with her father was kind of key to her decision to become a performer because um, she always sort of grew up, um, I think, with the sense of that it was kind of an amazing thing to have a stage. And, and she she saw her father with sort of a public stage and traveling around the country giving lectures and this sort of thing. Um, so I actually think that was very uh, formative for her. Um, she did have a, a, a pretty troubled relationship with her parents, though, and she essentially um, became – really what we would call a a runaway in um the late 1930s um she kind of leaves home right after the after her graduation from high school uh does some uh glamour modeling uh this was kind of pinup modeling in the late 30s early 40s um and goes to ends up living in new york city in uh, greenwich village um where just becomes fascinated with the beats. Uh, I mean, this is the golden age of the beats, Jack Kerouac and and, and Burroughs, and um, kind of thinks of herself really as 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 an artist in a number of different ways, both in her you know hopeful acting career, um, her plans for modeling. She's also painting and and making jewelry and selling it during these years, um, and she actually does make it to to Hollywood around this era, which kind of sets her up for being able to create the character of Vampira. Um, one of the most interesting things I discovered about her is that in the mid-40s, she was actually um, the great producer Howard Hawks, um, known for you know Hollywood classics like um, um, Red River and um, and uh, the science fiction classic The Thing from Another World. He, he kind of discovers her and um, essentially decides she's going to be the next Lauren Bacall. Um, and some of the studio uh, pictures that are taken of her, actually, she looks like Lauren Bacall. She's been made to look like Lauren Bacall. And um, that's how she gets to Hollywood. And uh, in kind of a strange irony, the idea that Hawks had is he was going to put her in this film called Dread Hollow, which sadly was never produced but this was going to be Howard Hawks's vampire movie 
written by none other than William Faulkner. I know. When, when I read that, and, it broke my heart that that didn't exist. <laughs> I mean, it's a, and it sounds like it would have been so weird and so amazing. Apparently, there's apparently it revolves around like a murder and a, a dead body sewed up in a taxidermied wolf. I mean, it was just like the the strangest set of uh, of ideas, um, and and that's how she gets how she gets to Hollywood. Um, West Hollywood in particular does a little bit of modeling um, and kind of sets her up for for being discovered again uh, this time by um, a studio executive named Hunt Stromberg uh, from uh, KBC, which is a local LA uh, TV station. One of the earliest, obviously, of the um, local TV station. Now, you also mentioned that she was involved in the bondage modeling scene. Yes. What- was that the same stuff that uh, like Betty Page was doing, or is it? Um, it was similar, um, but um, a bit different in the. I think the world that, the, or at least the way that Vampira Mylan Army entered into that world, um, it was it was impossible for me to discover how much modeling she had done for. Uh, the bondage magazines, particularly the most famous one in the 40s and 50s that was called Bazaar um, and was done by a famous, uh, now sort of infamous uh, photographer named John Willie. Um, of course, one of the interesting things about that was kind of discovering that there there was a flourishing underground of bondage magazines in the 1940s and 50s, but that really does seem to be the era that um, that that really takes that that really takes off. Um, part of the reason I wasn't able to discover whether or not she had actually had actually modeled for them, although I, I suspect that she did, um, is that um, a lot of those magazines you just frankly don't see the um, you don't see the face of the model. Um, you see a leg or an ankle or um, or that kind of thing. Um, but she certainly was fascinated with it, and she almost never gave an interview um, when she starts being interviewed frequently in, in the 90s and, and the early 2000s before her death, in which she didn't explicitly reference Bizarre and basically say that, you know, I, I borrowed this images from Vampira. I mean, Vampira is, in part at least, a, a dominatrix. I was also surprised to see that uh, at least sometimes she had talked about or at least dreamed of becoming some kind of evangelist, but but, but yeah. not like Billy Graham, but more like... Uh, no, not even yeah. close. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, something really different. Um, yes, um, she frequently described her reasons for creating Vampira and for doing the, the Vampira show as earning enough money to be able to set herself up as what she called a traveling evangelist. And she specifically felt like she needed a tent. Uh, She wanted um, to do sort of traveling tent revival sort of stuff. She had picked out a name for the persona she was going to use. She was going to be Sister St. Francis. Um, But, as you know, this was not in the model at all of of Billy Graham. Myla tended to believe that she had um, psychic abilities of one kind or another, um, 
particularly a um, lot of ideas about the interpretation of dreams and the interpretation of um, just um, other, other people's uh, psychic experiences. And so how she described it is she wanted to travel around um, helping people learn about her psychic powers um, and also proclaiming world peace, which I guess is the biggest thing that marks her as different from Billy Graham, who in this era was sort of proclaiming war against communism, you know, wherever it appeared, wherever it reared its head. Um, so, yeah, she, you know, I never found any evidence at all that she had any connection to a specific church um, other than her childhood connection to the Lutheran Church through her family, um, and certainly never anything resembling um, any kind of Christian orthodoxy or, or, or really any religious orthodoxy anybody would be familiar with. But she she always, and, and I tell you, I, I have to say, uh, and for Monster Talk, the Monster Talk audience, this is something, you know, um, probably worth discussing. I, I have to say that at first, I actually found this part of her life the only part of her that was sort of off-putting. Um, she was very, very interested in occult phenomena and um, everything from psychic powers to the ability to, to talk with the dead. And I, I, I don't think she ever quite gave that I, those set of ideas up. Um, but and, and it also got her in trouble um, from time to time. Um, I think later in her life, she may have come to think of that as a much more metaphorical way of talking about the significance of the character she created. Certainly for large portions of her life, it was a set of ideas that she simply believed in. You mentioned that um, she was thinking about modeling it after Amy Simple McPherson. And yes. do you know if she thought Amy, Sister Amy, was legit, or did she think that it was a, a good scam, or like what was her, you know, any idea what her angle was there? Uh, I think that um, you know probably the answer is somewhere in between. Hmm. Uh, she, I mean, Myla herself thought of the traveling evangelist gig as a way to make money, um, but also a way to make money and, and do good. Uh, I think that she was very impressed with Sister Amy's. I think she was impressed with uh, Sister Amy in two ways. One, just her sheer success, um, and you know the fact for a, a couple of decades. I mean, she was. I mean, you know, Sister Amy was the first woman in the United States to hold a radio license. Um, she almost is a weird sort of version of the the new woman and the flapper in the the 1920s, and I think. Uh, Milo was attracted to that. I think also just the way that she was sort of subversive in the sense of, you know, she was able to survive, Sister Amy was able to survive sexual scandals and, um, you know, really earned a tremendous amount of uh, criticism from, from male Pentecostal leaders. Uh, and so I think Mila, who who always, you know, was quite subversive herself, uh, was very attracted to that. I think uh, just because a lot of people may not know Sister Amy, her, her role in American history, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to that. That's kind of out of scope for monster talk, but <laughs> it is interesting from an American well, history. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, so. it is and it isn't yeah. in some ways. I, I, You know, she she did insist that she had healing abilities, and, and honestly, um, 
you know, I, I have wondered, I don't have any um, evidence for this at all, but I, I wonder if um, Myla uh, sort of borrowed some of her interest in psychic phenomena from, you know, Sister Amy's ability, alleged abilities to, you know, be able to prophesy and um, essentially do various kinds of, of telepathy. I mean, all of which um, Sister Amy attributed to the to the Holy Spirit rather than other kinds of powers, but uh, it's the same sort of, um, in some ways, it's the same phenomena, um, you know, in terms of the, the form. Now, now, Vampira dressed differently than Sister Amy. But <laughs> oh, yes. Let's talk about her. Vampira dressed differently than anybody ever. Um, I think that uh, kind of the I think key to understanding the kind of character that um, that was being created uh, is to to think about that. So she she starts out with the idea that well I'm going to create a, a kind of a vampire woman and kind of modeled on two things. Um, she seems to have been really impressed with um, the uh, 1936 film um, uh, Daughter of Dracula. Um, where you had this very powerful um, vampire lady, uh, a vampire in a couple of senses. I mean, she really sort of vamps her victims in kind of a old school uh, silent school a silent film fashion. Um, and then also she was borrowing um, kind of the uh, the dark female figure from um, the uh, cartoons of the New Yorker cartoons of Charles Adams. And so she took both of these figures and and really did two things. She she sexualized them much more, and she also kind of turned them into parodies of expectations for 1940s, 1950s female beauty. Um, The most striking um, evidence of this is that um, she managed – and – I've had many people call this into question, but this is completely verified from numerous different sources. But she actually managed to, on on the nights that she performed, she shrank her waist down to 17 inches, um, which, you know, to give you an idea, uh, Forrest Ackerman, who later founded Famous Monsters, said it was actually possible to to wrap your two hands completely around her waist. Um, And she did this by this kind of really dangerous combination of of excessive fasting, um, wrapping herself um, up in a tire inner tube (laughs) the night before that she performed the night before she performed, uh, and also using um, a cinch belt, um, which was kind of a, a popular accoutrement in uh, women's women's clothing in general, but particularly in bondage gear. That's where more sort of the... the Do you think she was inspired by the, uh, the old adage, waste not, won't not? <laughs> I, you know, I... I, I wasn't really sure how you were going to work a pun yeah. in our discussion. Um, I mean, I was—I've been preparing for it and thinking of the possible ways. I have to say, I'd not guess that. No. So, so you got me. Okay, good, good. All right, so, I'll try to keep them to a minimum from here out. So. <laughs> Hello, 
I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. I think that what she was really inspired by is... um, the the way in which this was really kind of the polar opposite of expectations for what the female form was, you know, quote unquote, supposed to look like in this era. Um, if you look at the pinups of the 40s and 50s, which she with which she was very familiar, all of the emphasis was on sort of having these, you know. Um, clear sort of, you know, childbearing hips and um, almost being, you know, sort of a bit hefty. Um, There was something that was both kind of titillating and terrifying, I think, to what she did with her waist. I mean, it looked just so strange to people. And um, R.H. Green, who I, I mentioned earlier, has said that, you know, he, he thinks that part of what was going on um, is that it's almost the, the illusion that she is without a womb, um, which in uh, the 1950s, this is antithetical to the whole idea of, um, you know, one, uh, you know the, the thing to do is to marry and to have lots of children. Um, and then interestingly enough, I mean, um, as, as although there's been rumors, uh, various kinds of unsubstantiated rumors about this, um, uh, Myla herself never had children. Um, she didn't. She literally didn't conform to that '50s ideal. She also, you know, frequently made fun of that that ideal. Uh, one of her most famous quips um, that we have that she she used on the show was that um, you know she loved children. They're they're delicious. Um, which, <laughs> you know, it's just. It's sort of more to humor today, I suppose, um, although mommy culture is, is very much back in vogue. But uh, in the 1950s, that was 
that was a little bit more out there than than people were were comfortable with. I mean, this was really the age of the romanticizing and and celebration of of the child and of and of motherhood. I think that the thin waist also gave her kind of an insectish look in a way. It did yeah, a little a bit like a spider. Well, yeah. And and you know and and she used a lot of spider imagery. Uh, she of course had her pet spider Rollo, uh, which was always with her. Um, Rollo actually helped her scrub her back when she did um, um, this little skit where she would get in a bathtub and um, appeared to be completely nude. Um, again, TV, 1954, 1955. Um, she's got the pet spider. Uh, that is uh, sponging her back, and the whole time she's talking to uh, this character that apparently is in a scuba outfit, uh, swimming around in the bathtub, whose name was Igor. Um, and he, you know, we never see him, but she sort of talks back and forth uh, with him, you know, during the during the skit. So we're actually talking about you know pretty edgy stuff um, for television in that. For television in that area. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, also, just for the listeners, uh, I I know spiders are not insects. This that's I got that. Okay. <laughs> oh, um, I I think maybe I knew that too, yeah. <laughs> but I'd forgotten until you just said. So. So I like to say insectish because arachnidish doesn't really sound right. So yeah. <laughs> right, but that yeah, that's she was that's definitely quite trying to pull that. Off yeah, there. yeah, but but wow, that is very risque. You know, I, this kind of struck me while I was reading. I, I kept thinking if she had been ten years later, she she might have fit in with the yep. Warhol factory set pretty well. Yeah, she absolutely would have. Um, yeah, I, I actually say early in the book that um, there's something about um, kind of her general. Um, attitude, her general cultural style, that it, it just doesn't feel like the early 50s. Um, it feels like she needs to be hanging out with Warhol and Burroughs and Patti Smith and, um, you know, Lou Reed. I mean, she really feels like she belongs to that world. I think that um, that obviously is to me part of what makes her so interesting is that she seems like this kind of precursor to rebellion. Um, at the same time, I think she kind of fits in with something else that I wanted to say, which is just that the fifties are just not what we've, you know, culturally created them to be. They were really a much more interesting place. I mean, sure, it's the world of Leave it to Beaver and Donna Reed and I Love Lucy and Levittown and et cetera. Um, but, you know, this is also the world of Jack Kerouac and Bebop Jazz and um, all sorts of uh, Elvis Presley, um, all, all kinds of, you know, kind of precursors to what we generally think of as this, you know, big cultural explosion that's coming in the 60s. Maybe I thought maybe uh, watching L.A. Confidential would be a good uh, precursor to reading your book. Oh, it yeah. kind of set the tone. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it actually really does picture. I mean, one of the things that I, I hope readers will enjoy about the book, I and mean, this may, may be more West Coast readers, but I think anybody that's interested in kind of mid-century America is that, you know, I've, I kind of felt like, um, and I had no plans for this, but sort of L.A. in that era becomes um, almost a kind of a character in, in, in the book because part of what Vampira was reflecting was, 
just the weirdness of a, a, of a period when, you know, you have a major urban center that in so many ways is also like the wild frontier um, with everything from um, the studio system to the involvement of organized crime in the, in the studio system to just the ways that all kind of, you know, new experimental forms of, of being American um, are being played out. Pretty much all of the uh, pop cultural fame that people associate with her happened in one year, 1954. But obviously she didn't yeah. fall over dead after that. She continued to do other things. <laughs> right. So right. what happened after those 1954 studio days? Yeah. Well, um, one thing I would say about that is that, unfortunately, I, I sometimes feel like there's not enough attention on – her sort of 1954-1955 run at, at in television. I'm, I think for one thing, she was much more famous nationally than she's been given credit for, and I include a lot in the book that that suggests that to be so. I think a lot of people know about her uh, from the film she appeared in in the late 50s, Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Um, you know, kind of famous for being, you know, quote unquote, the worst film ever made. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, she's mostly known, I think, because of that, because she didn't want to be in it to begin with. She only took the job because she needed, you know, she literally needed the money. I mean, she was on public assistance at a certain point and um, just really trying to scrape together um, a living. Um, so, you know, that combined, as you mentioned earlier, the um, kind of the revival of interest in Ed Wood with the Tim Burton film in, in 1993, kind of owed to um, a lot of her um, uh, a lot of her current uh, cult following. But, you know, she she became kind of a, a part of the local color of, of West Hollywood, WeHo, as, as it came to be known. Um, this became the sort of the... Um, you know the um, the the most bohemian part of Los Angeles, the bohemian part of Los Angeles, um, and she actually opens uh, she actually opened kind of this combination antique art thrift store on Melrose Avenue called Vampire's Attic, which was um, just modeled after um, the way that she set up her show. She described her show as Vampire's Attic. Um, and she became, um, a, you know, kind of a local cult figure before she became much later a national cult figure. So much so that I found that, um, and this is one of the more interesting things I got to write about, in the 1980s, okay, and so by this time, um, you know, she's she's a woman in her, her 60s. Um, she actually has a, a very close involvement in the West Coast uh, punk, post-punk scene. Um, and she's actually doing monologues and readings at some, you know, very famous places like um, in, in American post-punk history, like um, uh, the Annie Club, um, where, you know, bands like uh, Black Flag and, and um, the future Red Hot Chili Peppers are performing. And, and she's actually once a week going and doing readings 
from this manuscript that um, may be out there. I at least don't have access to it, where she wrote about her relationship with James Dean and Hollywood in the 1950s. Apparently, she was a real a real favorite in that you know in that scene. Um, it's only in the 1990s that she starts to become kind of a an icon in in the horror community. Although part of the reason that I wrote the book is that she's sort of this cult figure that only you know fans of this genre are familiar with, and even they don't really know a lot about her. Um, other than kind of a few disconnected facts. Um, what I felt like is that I had sort of stumbled on somebody whose influence over American culture um, was much greater than, um, you know, her her fame or, or lack of fame would suggest. I guess we should at least talk about her sort of long-running feud with Elvira, which, which I kind of sure. wish would be like, I guess it should be with Myla versus Cassandra, not Vampira versus Elvira, but I'd rather watch right. the second yeah, one. Really but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's an interesting and a, a much more complicated story than, than is often presented. And I, one of the things I've tried really hard to do in the book is show some of the nuances um, to it. Um, I mean, you know, obviously I'm a vampire partisan, um, but at the same time, um, you know, it was a situation that I'm not sure Myla exactly understood everything um, that was going on. Um, essentially what happens is that around 1980, Myla's contacted um, uh, by a local LA TV station um, with the idea that they're going to launch a new horror host. And um, she is given kind of executive producer status. Uh, she is supposed to have um, some say in selecting who her, who really who her successor will be. She never wanted to play Vampire again. She she felt that she was too old <laughs> to to be Vampire, but she wanted to you know obviously have a role in in choosing her her successor. And she actually wanted to do something that was quite radical um, for 1980. doesn't seem very radical today. But she wanted a um, – she essentially wanted an African-American um, uh, or, or I should say person of African descent because she actually um, looked at uh, Lola Falana as a possibility. She she wanted an African American person of African descent to be the new vampire, and her her logic behind that was that um, that the sex and morbidity stuff just wasn't going to shock America out of its complacency. Uh, America at this point needed something more. Well, the um, uh, studio execs. Her old enemy, and I think this is this is sort of part of the story and the way that she reacted, the way that she did. Um, they went with Cassandra Peterson, who they wanted to play a kind of combo goth girl, valley girl, um, sort of this bubbly, silly character who would make lots and lots of jokes about her breasts. And um, this was not what Vampira wanted, well, what Myla, I should say, wanted at all. Um, she first starts by 
beginning legal proceedings against the studio. And I think that's important. A lot of her original animus was not against Sandra Peterson, was not against Elvira per se. It was against the studio. It's only after um, it's only after Elvira became kind of the nation's horror host in the 80s and, and uh, you know, the head of, of really a, a massive uh, corporation that she sues Cassandra Peterson. I, I, I am a bit of a, uh, an Elvira fan for a couple of reasons. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> no, I've never heard that before. <laughs> no, you know, she, she, I, I followed her career for a long time because she has, uh, yeah. you know, she has the, uh, I think she was in the Groundlings and she's got that uh, relationship with uh, Pee Wee Herman, who is also in the same comedy troupe. Right. And so she That's she right. appears in uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. So, which is a Tim right. Burton film. Wow, there's all these connections. Of course, I mean, just, there there are a lot of yeah. connections. <laughs> and one of the things that I learned, I mean, in part again because of you know just being on Team Vampira, rah rah rah. I was I was not really an Elvira fan, but I gained a significant amount of appreciation for her in part because I actually learned that their backgrounds were very, very similar in certain ways. I mean, um, you know, um, Cassandra Peterson got her start in the films and, you know, came out of glamour modeling and um, had an interesting relationship to the uh, gay and lesbian community, just as uh, just as had, um, had has had Myla. I mean, they really seem like people who would have been friends had they known one another outside of this particular um, this particular situation. Yeah, they were kind of um, cast as enemies by their career launches. I mean, the way the art, the art, were, the art of history. <laughs> Absolutely, and and I think one of the things that Myla never knew um, is that um, Peterson was to some degree kind of pushed into playing into playing the character she played. Um, one interesting story I uncovered is that uh, Peterson's original idea was to to actually do a horror host that would be modeled on Sharon Tate's character in the Fearless Vampire Hunters, uh, Polanski's Fearless Vampire Hunters. And the studio was just like, no way. Because um, obviously um, at that time and still, I mean, Sharon Tate is uh, completely, you know, connected to the Manson murders. And I mean, this is this was not the image that they wanted to project. So, um you know, she's made plenty of she she's done well for herself, let's say. Um, you know, she's really you know, she became the head of a multi you know, million dollar media empire, uh, because of because of this. But at the same time she was a very interesting actor. She is a very interesting actor in her own right and, and very talented and and I, I don't think um, I think one of Myla's blind sides in this was not really, you know, being able to realize that. Yeah. So she also lost the lawsuit. I well, it, it, it was probably I mean, more. It was really thrown out of court. Yeah, it was. It's, it was. Um, I think the grounds were based on trademark infringement, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And. It's the same kind of stuff that ties up uh, Windows and you know Mac and you know PC arguments. It's it's look and feel, uh, and and since she herself yeah, was drawing on the history of you know horror characters and Adams, sure. you know she, she was kind of on shaky ground. So 
<laughs> yeah, and my understanding is she was, you know, and I suspect that I don't know much about her legal team, but she probably at that point couldn't, uh, well, she could not have really afforded, um, um, you know, a very significant one. And they were honestly really only, they were arguing a case that had already been decided yeah. <laughs> in other forms. Uh, the Lugosi estate, interestingly enough, had attempted to, um, attempted to sue along, you know, sort of the same lines. Um, so, um, um, and um, it was also a period for her that was difficult personally. There are stories that, you know, she just simply wasn't showing up to court, for example. Yeah. Um, and when she was, um, when she was scheduled to do so, um, it, you know, it, the, the thing that interested me too is that there were so many other people that she could have sued <laughs> over, uh, you know, in the 20 years before this came along. Right. That right. in some ways it almost would have made more sense. Yeah. Um, that it did look like they were directly stealing vampire, well, not a character that was a bit like her. Yeah, so in most of my reading about horror hosts, and I, I'm going to put some links in the show notes to um, some of those. Uh, there's a really cool website that's just got tons of uh, TV horror host information, and then there's a really nice documentary called American Scary, which kind of talks about this. Yes, that's wonderful. Yeah. It, it's a documentary, and it um, there's also it was originally a book, and and I would really recommend that too. But it does it does seem to be a mostly male uh, sort of a thing. It's yes. very very male dominated, um, and it's interesting because as she got older. She really sort of fit into the demographic that would have been a horror host. I mean, she, her being young and attractive uh, really is kind of against type for what became the horror host yes. scenario. So it's, yes, I mean, it's almost entirely older men. Um, and um, I think that uh, as far as I know, I've and I can't recall the name of the character, but characters, but as far as I know, other than, you know, Elvira, we've only had, I think, two, um, you know, major market um, local horror hosts in in kind of the the history of those figures. I I think it's interesting because culturally it seems like what's happened is we had the original horror hosts um, who did comedy, and then it sort of went to Elvira, uh, who she does comedy too, little intros, and kind of cuts the terror down a little bit. Although... In right. some cases, since the most of these shows are using lower budget uh, films, so it, the comedy is almost like, oh, we're really sorry we have to show this movie, but here's a funny joke and a lady in a hot outfit, right? So, <laughs> right, uh, right, <laughs> trying to bring some something else to the table because they know the film's not enough, right? And and I think there may have been some of that with. Vampira. Um, however, I, you know, one of the things that I found was that, you know, her humor was just really kind of qualitatively different. Um, you know, she actually, even though she was arguably showing far more execrable films <laughs> than appeared than appeared later, um, she wasn't so much making fun of the movies. Um, if anything, she was sort of making fun of her viewers' lifestyles. And um, I agree that a lot of the later hosts, especially those that kind of focused on, you know, um, um, a younger audience, they kind of used jokes to sort of cut down on the terror. Um, all of uh, 
all of Vampira's jokes were really quite morbid and and um, actually sort of played up um, the the aspects of of death that um, you know obviously always been central to to horror. So she's there was an element of the kind of stuff that she did that almost underscored um, the most frightening aspects of um, of the kind of thing she was showing. <laughs> I I think in a way they also sort of presage uh, the coming of mystery science theater, riff tracks, those kind of things. Yes. And uh, that seems to be the the current trend now is just talk right over the movie. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. Even when you go to the movie theater, that's, <laughs> that's the current trend, right? Um, but yeah, I I think so. I think that the horror host phenomena, um, um, honestly, as well as um, the interest uh, in Ed Wood in in the '90s, kind of gave birth to the um, the films that are the idea of the films that are so bad that they're good. Um, that kind of notion. Um, which, you know, speaking as, you know, obviously a pretty serious horror fan myself, I often find just incredibly tiresome just because so many of these films are so bad that, you know, they're just really so bad. Yeah, yeah. And, um, uh, you know, there's only really kind of limited amounts of pleasure that can be taken um, away from some of these things. Um, certainly, though, what somebody like, especially Zvenguli, who I think this, you know, the recent, the sort of the second incarnation of Zvenguli, um, just does a great job. Um, you know, even with films that are, you know, that are considered kind of classics, kind of sort of horror classics, um, in pointing out, you know, almost our, the the ridiculous nature of our interest in horror. Uh, I mean, there is something really silly about our, you know, continuing to return to these films that are, are essentially about death. I mean, this is, this is not something that, you know, we would necessarily expect. And, of course, you know, some people don't even think that this is particularly psychologically healthy that we do this. And I think that at its best, the horror hosts enabled us to, to make fun of ourselves as much as as much as the fans. You know, one other thing uh, that you covered in the book is the period of time when she was around in the fifties. The social culture, the scene, the evening scene in, in L.A. And you talk about oh, yeah. she was hanging out with James Dean. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I don't. Uh, first of all, let me just say I don't want to. I think we've done a really good job of covering a lot of the topics without even really digging in at all into what's really in your book. It's got a lot of more content than this, but. Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is Milo becomes involved with James Dean and Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. And at the same right. time, at the exact same time, there's an actor named Nick Adams who uh, you might know from uh, – well, he was in monster movies. He was in Frankenstein Conquers the World, Die, Monster, Die, and, and even a Godzilla movie, Godzilla versus Monster Zero. Although I actually saw him first in uh, No Time for Sergeants. Uh, with with, okay. with Andy Griffith, but he was at the same time involved with James Dean and Elvis Presley. I thought that was so interesting because that is interesting, yeah. and I did not come across you know really that connection. Well, wasn't he also? Um, didn't he actually also star in a TV western? The Rebel. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> wow, you knew that. That's amazing. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it seems like, uh, and you know, it's, I guess it's also interesting too because I'm pretty sure that he also dies 
you know, relatively young. Yeah, he dies at 36 of a drug overdose. It's one of those weird, okay. weird Hollywood stories where uh, some of his friends think it was a simple drug overdose. Some think it was suicide and some think it was murder. Um, it, I'm right. pre- well, and this was uh, because of the tabloids. I mean, this is kind of the first era of the Hollywood tabloid. Yeah. And so, um, you know, this is part of the reason why um, – uh, Mila's association with James Dean ended up being so controversial. I just, the, the, in, although she lived a very full life, her life seems kind of tragic in that she was important yet missed all the fame, you know? <laughs> I, she did. Uh, so. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's essentially the story is that, um, and, you know, this, the, the thing that um, I think I was really struck by is that even though there's an enormous amount of interest in her after, um, Tim Burton at Wood appears, um, it it really never translates for her into, first of all, money, um, which was always, I mean, she, at certain points in her later years, she's, you know, it's sort of like the world is fascinated with her and she's living um, on $300 a month. And there's also kind of this, you know, now and, and really even earlier, um, a kind of a general concession that she's the she's really the beginning of the goth style. She sort of creates really you know the seminal um, imagery of of goth. I mean, not really only in her look, but the way in which there's sort of the idea that public representation of horror and and morbidity is has a kind of a political element. I mean, it's it's not just about kind of a graveyard poet fascination with death. It it has an element of of satiring, you know, what the straits are up to. It's interesting that in the same time she was doing the Ed Wood movie, uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space, they're like the same week, I think, uh, certainly within the same month, she was being used by Disney to model uh, Maleficent for the Sleeping Beauty. That's right. Yeah, and it's like, wow. what? I mean, that's a huge secret cultural impact that she had that most people won't even know about. Yes, um, and actually um, because of some documents that he has access to through um, through Myla's niece, actually, Sandra Nearme, um, who herself, I believe, is going to um, um, put together a, a, a more of a full length and I think probably much more detailed biography than, than and a more much more traditional biography than I did. He was able to uncover um, this really really interesting connection that just suggests that she was sort of everywhere in this foundational movement of America becoming Gothic again. Um, she really seems like a person out of time in so many ways because we well know that over the last 10, 15, 20 years, American pop culture has developed all these you know, dark cultural fascinations in our TV shows and books and in our movies. Um, and I think that um, a big part of my interest in, in writing um, Vampire, Dark Goddess of Horror was to sort of say, you know, she's the archetypal figure, um, and, and not just in some kind of metaphorical way, um, but through actual historical links to this this idea that was seemed so out there in 1954, but now is in many ways very mainstream. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us no, today about this, this. And, and to write this book. I mean, it's a lot of research, and I think you did a really good job of putting together 
a fascinating. I don't know. I don't, cross section is not the right word, but you really captured the the spirit of a, a 1950s that most people probably have not really thought much about. As uh, you know, if they're my age or younger, that um, it's just it's just a lot more robust and interesting culturally than um, we might imagine it to be. If you if our only exposure is through you know pictures and 1950s movies, for example, because the, it's it's too simplified. There's a lot more going on. <laughs> Absolutely, and um, thanks for noticing that. I mean, that was absolutely something that um, that I was trying to accomplish and to try to show the way that you know, Vampira is um, an, is is an extreme, but also very good representation of that. I think. All right. So thanks for being on Monster Talk. Thank you. I enjoyed this. We talked about it before, I'm sure, when you were here last time. But uh, what's your favorite monster? Bride of Frankenstein. Yes, we sure did. In fact, I've, I, since that interview, I went and got a nice print of – my office has a lot of cool stuff in it now. I've got Attack of the 50-Foot Woman poster, and I've got Bride of Frankenstein up. A lot of zombies, some Bigfoot. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I, the bride for sure. She's the, in some ways the original female monster in some sense. So, yeah. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, and this has been a special pop culture edition I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard me interview Scott Poole about his new book, Vampyra, Dark Goddess of Horror. A link to the book and many other delights are in the show notes at monstertalk.org. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Atlantis. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. If you like to read but don't like to spend money, you might check out the new Insight blog at skeptic.com forward slash insight. It's a community blog by a lot of interesting folks, many of whom I consider friends, all of whom I consider colleagues, and some of whom tolerate my puns. Super duper thanks to D.R. Crane and Shane Brady for donating to the show. I have more transcripts coming soon thanks to their kind gifts. Thanks to everyone who's gone to iTunes and given us a review. I really appreciate it. And I'm not going to ask for five-star reviews. I'm just asking for honest reviews, and I appreciate them all. One more free thing you can do to help out the show is share it with a friend. We've had over 2 million downloads now, but we don't have 2 million listeners yet. Share Monster Talk with a needy friend today. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. To stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Oh, yeah. So... Well, you know, all you have to really do is read the introduction conclusion, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and then make sure you remember what the professor talks about a lot and put a lot of that in there. Yeah, so, right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Everybody loves to hear echoes. Um, 